Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. Today, I am delighted to be joined by James Meads on Life Beyond the Number. James, you're very welcome. (laughs) Thank you, Susan. Pleasure to be joining you. Thank you for having me. Brilliant. Now, you're the second guest in a very short period of time that I met at the Purchase to Pay Network event in London, which was a great place to meet podcast guests, obviously. Something you said intrigued me, and that was that you describe yourself as a location independent digital nomad (laughs) that's a mouthful well actually what does it mean that's a great question it's also quite a loaded question and I'll explain why so essentially a digital nomad is anyone that is not impacted by what we would call tyranny of place in terms of family or, or job or circumstances that commit you to be in a certain place for any given period of time but if you take it to the more extreme level there are people that call themselves digital nomads who literally don't have any home or any base and essentially travel the world living out of a suitcase I met one guy actually from Israel at a conference recently he literally just travels with carry-on I don't know how he does it I'm certainly not that extreme I do have a home base but I choose to spend winters elsewhere. And in theory, I could, with what I do, you know, with a few constraints around time zone and serving clients, live anywhere that has strong enough internet. But I am based for most of the year in a little ski resort called Bansko in Bulgaria. And yeah, I sort of travel generally in for the most of the winter to escape the cold weather and all the rowdy tourists that come here during ski season. So where do you go to in the winter then? Well, last winter, because it was a bit trickier with travel, I spent Christmas and New Year, most of January in Turkey. And then I spent February and early March in Spain and then came back to Bulgaria in the middle of March, thinking that most of the winter would be over and then proceeded to have it snow for a week. And good job I didn't change my winter tires back on my car too early because, uh, yeah, it, it was a good four weeks before we had proper spring. And that phrase you used right at the beginning, I can't get it out of my head, so I have to come back to it, is tyranny of place. You make it sound like all the rest of us have this awful life (laughs) where we're stuck somewhere because of family or because of jobs or whatever. But I guess I understand the concept of actually you have the freedom or the choice to move a bit more freely 
which I've used some of those words twice, but you know what I mean? Yeah, that's it. Anyone that's got family or friends and they're happy with, with where they live and where they're raising their family and with their circle of friends and everything, that's brilliant. When I mean tyranny of place, I mean, if you're stuck having to live in a specific location because your employer says you need to be in the office in a set location, every single day, or even nowadays, what, three or four days a week. That's what I mean by that. I mean, you, I would always, you know, encounter people that would say, oh yeah, I live in London because I have to, because my job's there, or I live in Amsterdam or New York or wherever, because that's where the jobs are. And that's becoming less and less relevant, isn't it? And I, I do think that's incredible. It is, isn't it? I mean, I, even as you're saying that, I'm thinking, yeah, I had to live in Dublin <laughs> for a number of years. And, you know, if you like city living, wonderful. But actually, capital cities are often, I think, quite soulless places. And being able to choose somewhere that maybe is in the countryside or is a smaller capital city, not like London or New York. Yeah. Well, it's, a- it's not just that. I just think it's the cost of living factor. I just think... What are the two things that you spend the most money on? And I think probably eight, nine out of 10 people would, would sort of agree on this. It's how much you pay on, on rent or for your mortgage. And it's how much you pay out of your gross income, be you self-employed or you have a job in taxes and social contributions to the government in the jurisdiction that you live in. And if you can impact both of those, while not in the case of taxes or social security giving yourself any detriment to your quality of life in terms of healthcare, pension, anything like that, then why wouldn't you? Even if you earn £100,000 a year in London, you're not rich. You're getting by. You, you can afford to go out and go to, go to the pub and go on holiday, but you're by no means wealthy, are you? And, and then you think, you know, how much would that get you in other parts of the world? And life tends to come into a different perspective. It does. And I wonder how many people though ask that question. Like, it's such a simple question. Why wouldn't you? But I wonder how many of us ask ourselves that question. But let's move on. <laughs> and maybe we'll come back to that later. <laughs> does it involve a lot of like planning and logistics and so on to be able to move around like that and work from wherever? I mean, the short answer is yes, it does, but it it it's different depending on your circumstances, I guess. I mean, the obvious one is if you're not single and you have kids, then you've then you've got either a partner and or a family to consider in that decision. It's not impossible. I know people that do it, but it takes a lot more planning to do that. I think the other factor is, and it's something that I've struggled with a bit coming from an industry that is not traditionally geared up to things like freelance work is is your professional background and skill set congruent to you being able to do that because I mean yes on the one hand you can go and get a remote job but when I did it at the end of 2018 it's obviously pre-covid there weren't that many remote jobs out there and even if they were it wasn't work from anywhere. It was, you can work from home, but you're going to be employed in this country. Indeed, the last corporate job that I had, I had a home office contract, but it was expected that I was in the country where I was employed. I couldn't just go and spend the winter in Argentina or something like that. 
Mm. You talked about taxes, and I think taxes is probably the one area that, especially if you're in employment, that an employer has to be very careful of anyway. And that is going to come with restrictions, isn't it? And social security and all of those, because if there's a workplace accident and blah, blah, blah. But just, and, and it's not blah, 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 really, but just from your perspective, because even as a consultant now or a podcast host and all of these things, how easy is it to just work somewhere else? In terms of practicalities, having reliable Wi-Fi and being able to deal with it with things like setting up your company and that type of thing, it's relatively straightforward. I've not really had any issues with that. I mean, if I'm traveling somewhere that's not my home and I need to record podcasts, that can be a bit tricky because... You know, if you're spending time in an Airbnb or in a hotel, you need to have reliable Wi-Fi and the acoustics to be able to record content if you're doing any sort of audio or video content creation. But other than that, it's reasonably straightforward. I think the thing that I probably struggled most with is just procurement, which is the area that my background is in, is not something that traditionally has been a particularly freelance heavy career or job sector. So if I was a software developer or a graphic designer or a marketer, and even in a virtual CFO to a certain extent, but procurement and supply chain is not something that has traditionally had a big sort of gig economy. There have always been demand for contractors and interim managers, but that's generally been very much a bum on a seat for a day rate type of setup rather than outcome-based or sort of more piecemeal works. That was probably the biggest challenge that I've had in this whole thing, or at the start at least, finding enough remote-based work to be able to pay the bills, which ultimately led me down the route that I've gone down with more of a sort of content creator or creating a business that I can work on rather than in, just in the sense that I'm not just selling my time for a day rate. Interesting, yeah. And do you think... COVID has accelerated your ability to do more work remotely as well, or the concept of it. Did it help in some way? I think it certainly accelerated the concept of it that companies are now aware that a lot of people will demand that. I do think in more traditional industries like procurement and supply chain, the worm has turned back a little bit now, now that fingers crossed we're over the worst of it. Most of the roles that I see, be them permanent or or be they interim, tend to be hybrid, which is a lot better than it was if you were expected to commute to the office every day. But it doesn't really sort of help people like me who are not in the country or the jurisdiction where the roles being being offered. So I mean, it's definitely better than it was, but I still think we have a long way to go in that sector until we're approaching the level of freedom that gig workers have in the tech industry, for example, or in marketing. Mm, mm, Yeah. So you have a background in corporate world, though. You always haven't been freelance like this or a consultant with your own company. And you started off in the UK, but then spent a lot of your career in Germany. Yeah, that's right. I started off in the UK at Jaguar Land Rover. That was my first sort of proper job outside of university. So I started there as a graduate trainee in in what was then called purchasing. And yeah, I spent a year in Germany when I was when I did my sandwich year at, at university and really, really enjoyed it out there. And when I got the opportunity, I'd always been keen to work abroad for a few years as part of my career. And 
it just happened that about four or five years into my career, I applied for a couple of jobs that were abroad, and one of them happened to be looking for the exact sort of background and skill set that I got on my CV. And they offered me what at the time was a really good salary based on my experience. And it was just a situation that all of my friends at the time were starting to get married and buy houses. And I thought, well, if, if I don't take it because I'm worried about missing my friends, I'm probably not going to see them in a couple of years time anyway, when they've all got kids. So I'll do it for two or three years, see how it goes. I've not really got anything to lose. I can rent out my sort of small flat that I had in Coventry at the time. If So I can always come back to it if it doesn't work out. And then 12 years later, I was still there. So yeah, what turned out to be go there and see what I think ended up being a 12-year stint before I left. And I did three different jobs while I was out there. So I would recommend it to everyone. It's obviously, for any of the Brits listening to this, a little bit tougher now with Brexit, but the world is is a lot bigger than just EU countries. And once you look into it, getting residency and getting getting visas isn't as hard as you may initially think, despite the fact that it's more difficult now for anyone with a British passport, but not being part of the EU. Yeah, well, I don't have that problem. (laughs) (laughs) But I totally agree. Working overseas is one of the best things that I ever did. And I see both of us worked in sub-Saharan Africa for a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) I've been in a lot of African countries and there's nothing like I would like actually I can't even imagine James what some of the logistical <laughs> procurement nightmares might have been like over there any great yeah. story to share so I spent three months in Nigeria when I worked for Kimberly Clark I worked in corporate procurement for Kimberly Clark and I had a new boss about the end of 2016 and my first one-to-one with him and I knew him quite well from a just from from the office and you know been there for a while my first one-to-one with him was you know are you happy doing what you're doing and I said no I'm a little bit bored I'm not really learning anything be up for trying something new if you hear of anything on the grapevine about a week later he said are you available tomorrow for a quick chat with me and my boss and yeah and then I said how do you fancy going to Nigeria for three months and I was like well I'd have preferred going to Cape Town but yeah why not and yeah, there are a lot of challenges out there that you could only dream of if you don't know just some of the things that that you have to deal with. So reliability of electricity, just dealing with production efficiency when you're running off generators. You know, one of the biggest tenders that we had to do out there was buying diesel for the generators, which is a problem that most plants in Western Europe or North America would never have to consider. Probably the biggest challenge, though, and even more since since COVID, I suspect, and with with all of the supply chain crises, was just how chaotic and how completely underprepared the port infrastructure over there is for any kind of import or export. And if you ever want a, an example of how chaotic certain African countries are, in Lagos, they decided to dig up the main road that was leading to the port without putting in any any provision or any contingency planning and it was taking trucks two weeks just sat there in a queue just to unload their containers or to pick up their containers from the port and the amount of cost that gave us and any other fmcg company that was operating in nigeria in terms of just inefficiency and additional cost that was just such a waste the cost of 
taking a truck about 30 kilometers from the port to where our production plant was, I think pretty much quadrupled during that time. And that was actually mirrored then about four years later after COVID with this supply chain crisis and then not being enough shipping containers. And when the prices exploded to the middle of last year, for the exact same reason, the quality, quantity, capacity, supply and demand, it's a crazy industry, supply chain in general, but doing supply chain in an emerging market is even more challenging. Yeah, but the funny thing is, as you talk about the delays, days people might sit in lorries waiting, it doesn't sound that different to what's happening down of the Channel Tunnel at the moment. (laughs) There was a lot of disruption here as well, and I think a lot of extra costs on companies. And we definitely have supply chain issues in the UK post-Brexit. And COVID has complicated it further as well. I think maybe a lot of us don't understand where our food comes from or where our products come from and what's involved in moving things around the world. And yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Does does everyone know what a supply chain is? Yeah, I think they do probably do now. And they're probably going to know even more in the autumn if there are challenges with you know, things like supply of food and that creates a migration crisis or all the other knock-on events that are that are possible. I still don't think a lot of people know what procurement is. Whenever I go to business networking events or expat meetups or anything like that, and you say you work in procurement, people just don't know what it is. Or they might have heard of public procurement. Is that just when the government needs to buy something well no private enterprise needs to as well or some people say is that law or is that sales it's changing but you know not when i was 22 and graduated university there weren't really any modules or any courses at bachelor's or master's level around procurement and supply chain. Supply chain management, maybe it was touched on in sort of operations management or in engineering, manufacturing management or logistics courses. The Chartered Institute of Procurement and Supply, SIPs, they were going since I think the early 90s, but there was just very little visibility of procurement as an industry. And that is changing now. Still, there is a lot of ignorance. A lot of people don't know what it is. Or, you know, those people that do know what it is think it's just placing orders and, and and checking invoices, which is part of it in terms of transactional operational procurement, but it's not, it's not where the money is. It's not where the opportunity, where the value is. And I think it's a shame that especially chambers of commerce and manufacturing associations don't embrace that because I think they're sitting on a lot of waste because they don't understand and give the right value to procurement. Okay, that, I mean, there's a lot in there and I want to come back to it, but maybe first explain what you do. So I now have a small online media startup called procurementsoftware.site. So one thing that I was really passionate about when I left corporate was just to shine a light on all of this innovation and technology that's out there that can make our lives easier just by digitizing well, originally just by digitizing a lot of the spade work that procurement professionals have to do, a lot of the administrative and sort of day-to-day crunching of stuff. But when you dig into it, there's a lot of technology that can do so much more than that and can really use things like artificial intelligence and robotic process automation, game theory, 
to really help us get to grips with things like risk management and material traceability and a lot of the ESG stuff that's coming our way as well in terms of being able to track and trace where something's come from or be able to project how much inventory you need to hold, for example, or measure carbon footprint of transportation. So the the tech is is really... It's a really diverse ecosystem of solutions providers and also in terms of solutions that it can offer. So what I essentially do is the website provides a directory of there are over 300 solutions listed on there now, because if you're not a big enterprise level organization, you would never have the ability to understand the breadth of the marketplace without having a very expensive corporate subscription to one of these big research houses which a lot of them work on a pay-to-play business model anyway. So is the research really neutral? <laughs> we won't go into that, going to go down that rabbit hole. Or the other way is to just hire a consultancy, but that is not necessarily within the means of your average mid-sized business. Maybe it is in some more high profit margin industries, but not in every industry. So it was really to open the eyes of procurement professionals and finance professionals and sustainability supply chain professionals of what is out there in terms of being able to to digitize a lot of this or to be able to use digital technology to give better market insights and data in a lot of cases so obviously we have to make money from that so one of the things that i wanted to ensure when i set it up was that it was free at the point of access to anyone on the buy side because that's usually the barrier to entry at the moment in order to do that We work with the solutions providers to do sponsored content on their behalf in the form of just upgrading their profile with a few things that make it a bit more sticky or also doing more traditional things like sponsored blogs, sponsored podcasts, live demos of their software via a webinar just to do the one-to-many. If I can get 10 people on a webinar to watch a demo, that's saving their salesperson a week's work in some cases. And we're also looking at essentially offering that knowledge that we've built as a white label product to boutique consultancies to enable them to, instead of them having one of their consultants sat behind a computer screen, Googling all of these technology solutions, we could do that for them better, cheaper and faster. So as they can then send out their consultants and build them at a daily rate, rather than having them sat on the bench. That's the sort of medium term goal of how we intend to monetize the site and we're making a bit of money from it now but it's a while before i can pay myself a salary from it we only we only launched in march so yeah early days and that's okay i mean that's what it's about isn't it when you start something and especially when you're driven i think with a mission as well to help make people's work lives easier is what i'm hearing and help The word you used earlier was value, and it's about unlocking that value, I think. And one of the blog posts I read on your website was about maverick spend. And I think that's a really interesting way of looking at things. And maybe you just talk through that concept of the different types of spend that people might not think about. So maverick spend essentially is any spend that is a surprise to the person working in accounts payable or the financial controller when the invoice lands on their desk. It's something that is, as a CFO or as a financial controller, it's impossible to predict in your cash flow because it's spend that is not 
budgeted or expected. In the very worst case, it's something that is agreed to over the phone between someone in your business and a supplier and nobody in procurement or finance has visibility of it. So there's no purchase order created. And then when the invoice lands on someone in accounts desk, what then usually happens is a purchase order has to be created or the allocation to that cost center has to be created after the fact. And it's known in procurement and finance speak usually as an after the fact PO purchase order. There are lesser forms of maverick spend that if people are still spending within their allocated budget, but with costs and conditions that have not been negotiated by a commercially literate professional, which is usually someone in procurement, sometimes in smaller businesses, that may be someone in legal or in finance, if they don't have in-house procurement, the least of the three evils is if a supplier sends in an invoice that doesn't get checked against the standard purchasing terms and conditions of a contract or a price list. Two examples of those are the way that overtime and out of contract charges are charged for maintenance contracts. If a forklift truck technician comes in at the weekend to fix a truck and that's not part of the standard fees, they can essentially then charge what they want because there's usually not time to get a purchase order through the system. Or transport and freight is another one that is usually a big area of, I won't say fraud because it's not fraudulent, but where there's a lot of uncontrolled spend within an organization because if it's not clear what inco terms what freight conditions a supplier is shipping according to then freight costs can often be uncontrolled and are very difficult to check by an accounts team if they don't really know what to look for and they don't know what you know purchasing or logistics or operations or whoever have agreed with the vendor so I get what you're saying, but it's quite technical, which is fine. But I always think about businesses and how they don't think about their people and how nothing gets done unless people do it. And even using computers or technical stuff or whatever it is, the people have to be in place. Somebody has to be able to read, enter data, whatever it might be. And what I'm getting from you is, I guess, People know maybe what they sell, what their business is about, but they don't always know what they're buying. That's that's the problem in pretty much every business, even large Fortune 500 companies that I'll compare this a little bit to a football analogy. Even if you don't like football, if I guess most people understand the basic concepts of football. If you don't, then humor me. So I always think of sales being the star striker or the twinkle toes Brazilian or Argentinian midfielder, the superstar, the Lionel Messi of the team or the Ronaldo. So sales is the striker. Sales is the star midfielder. What people don't realize is that without a great defense, no team is ever going to win the World Cup or the Champions League, no matter how good your striker is. And procurement is a little bit like the defense or a little bit like the goalkeeper that if you think in most organizations and certainly in manufacturing businesses and services businesses perhaps a little bit less so but in manufacturing businesses typically about 60 percent of a manufacturing business's total revenue is spent on goods or services that come from external vendors then typically about 20 percent is spent on human resources at five, 10%, depending on the profit margin of the business on general overheads. And then you've got a profit margin of 10 to 15%. Most manufacturing businesses work off that. Services business is a little bit different. Generally, they're higher margin. Generally, there's more spend on things like IT and professional services, which is consulting, which is still coming from external suppliers, but perhaps less visible. Now, 
it's a little bit like a leaking bucket that if you're concentrating and targeting your sales team to go out and increase sales turnover by 10, 15% year on year, which is pretty normal, then if you're not controlling what you spend, or if you don't have visibility on what, I, I don't like the word control. I think having visibility and monitoring what you spend, you know, because I think aimlessly slashing budgets is probably one of the most commercially illiterate things that you can do, uh, especially, especially, especially on things like training and marketing. It's just understanding um, almost, James, isn't it? It's, it is, it's yeah. visibility, take it a step further and understand what's driving your costs. That's it. And understanding the most basic thing that you can do, you know, even if you're even if you're only a one or two million pound or euro business, one of the easiest and quickest wins that you can get is pulling out a CSV file from your finance system, whatever it is you're using, and just breaking down what you spent with each of your suppliers over the last 12 months. So even if you're a small business and you don't have a procurement person, just breaking down what you're spending per vendor and trying to understand where there may be duplication or where there may be waste or where there may be outliers. If you're spending a fortune, for example, on catering, then why? Is there a culture in your business of having meetings over lunch? have your meetings at 10 o'clock in the morning and then you get rid of that problem. It's the small wins or is your taxi company overcharging you? Is there potentially fraud in there? Worst case, every company can do this. You don't need to have a, a well-stocked procurement team just to do a basic spend analysis. And yes, if you're a business that's, I would say, sort of 50 million pounds, euro and upwards, there is a business case to say, maybe invest in some tech to buy some spend analytics software, which by the way, you can go out and buy for about $10,000 a year. It doesn't have to be really, really expensive. You can get very good value for money spend analytics software that will then give you dashboards and allow you to break down the classification to another level. But that's the most basic thing that you can do. Once you've done that, you can then sort of slice and dice your supply base a little bit like you would do your customers and say, which ones are A, B, and C suppliers? Which ones are my key vendors that I need to keep on side? And which ones are essentially supplying a commodity or something that I don't care about that's an off-the-shelf product that I could just buy from somewhere else tomorrow if they went bankrupt? And it's the same way that sales dissect their customers and dissect some as being top level strategic customers, whereas others are a nuisance customers that they just want to make sure that they turn a profit on. And as soon as that account goes red, they get rid of them or they should do. It's the, it's the same with suppliers. You just need to know, you know, where does the opportunity lie? And even if you're only one or two million business, you know, maybe you're just a, a 10 person e-commerce store, you can still do that. Absolutely. And it's look after the pennies and the pounds will mind themselves is yeah. what I think about. And what is it? And I don't even know, like what? It's a bit like finance, isn't it? People don't want anything to do with it. It's like, oh, my God, there they are. They're telling me no with everything. So why don't people want to understand costs or do they see that that is just between procurement and finance? I think part of the problem is that people have this arrogance that they know how to buy stuff because everyone's bought something off Amazon or they know how to switch their energy supplier or get the best deal on their flights when they go on holiday. So 
there is this sort of mindset, and especially so in manufacturing firms, when the plant managers typically are know-it-alls and they think they can do everything better than everybody else, that we know best. And my sort of counter argument to that is, well, yeah, but we all know how to sell because we've all sold something on Facebook Marketplace, or we've all sold our secondhand car at some point. So then why do you need sales? Just like you wouldn't send an HR assistant or a quality manager to negotiate a new deal with your best customer, you shouldn't be letting them anywhere near a major contract with a supplier for the exact same reason that they're not commercially literate and trained people that know how to do this stuff. They might know the technical properties of what's being purchased, whether it's a good or a service better than the buyer. I mean, that's normal. If you're a materials engineer, then of course you're going to know about steel more than the person that's buying it. But that's not the point. It's about working together based on your strengths to be able to get the best deal out of the supplier or to get the best relationship out of the supplier. And even if you know about marketing services or about steel better than the person in procurement, you're not going to know about contracts, terms and conditions, logistics, risk management, and all that type of thing. No, and negotiation. Yeah. Which is negotiation is such an art form in itself. And it's not something that everybody can do. And that's specialized skill. In the past, when negotiation was more banging your fist on the table and just getting the lowest price, then then yes, manufacturing managers were very good at doing that because they come from quite an aggressive, raw environment in terms of what they do. But now, especially with all of these supply chain challenges and the word in procurement circles is about being customer of choice. And that doesn't mean just the one that gives them the best profit margin. It's the one that pays their invoices on time and isn't a pain in the backside to deal with and answers emails and responds to meeting requests and that type of thing. We've all been there that I've been guilty of it in the past that when a supplier emails me asking for a price increase, I just ignore it for a month and hope it goes away. But if you're going to build strategic relationships with suppliers and it's been proven, that's where now the opportunity is that you can't go out and get 5% year on year cost savings every year, because at some point, whatever you're buying will have to be free. And especially in a highly inflationary environment, you're just not going to be able to do that. So where can you get added value? You know, how can you partner with an equipment manufacturer, for example, that can make sure that the wear and tear spare parts that you're buying from them last twice as long, or that give you less downtime, because that in turn you know, reduces the amount of energy that you're spending firing the machine up and down or reducing the amount that you're having to spend at the weekend to bring in maintenance technicians when something goes pop. So there is a move away now from, and I know finance people often find this difficult to grasp, but there is a move away now from hard purchase price variant savings to more added value. And For anyone with a finance background, I know that it's a difficult sell to convince them that cost avoidance is is a saving. But, And I agree, it's not something that's immediately visible in a a, a P&L report. But if all of your procurement team stopped doing cost avoidance, then you would soon see the impact. But you would see it in the L rather than in the P, because that's the invisible work that they're doing day to day to make sure that your prices don't go up and that your deliveries get there on time or that price increases are being deferred by two or three months, or that they're negotiating certain sweeteners in the deal 
to make sure that your margin is being maintained. And even though you might not directly see it in the P&L in terms of the variance in price from a standard cost, it's very much part of what procurement does day to day. Yeah, so if I'm hearing it's about relationship management, one, and a strategic view, a long-term view. It's not about this quarter's results. It's more about, do we want to work on this reliable supplier's relationship so that we are guaranteed great service for years to come? Is absolutely that. It's ensuring that you're looking more at the longer term rather than short term. And it's also in procurement teams have been guilty of this in the past. It's also making sure that your procurement leadership team are of a more entrepreneurial mindset, looking at added value rather than just being the police. And you could say the same about HR as well. It's a very similar thing. You know, people, yeah, people think HR are useless because they're just seen as being a walking rule book. And we, procurement are guilty of the same a lot of the time that we're just seen as being the compliance police or the people that say no but it shouldn't be like that I mean yes you're gonna have to make sure that stakeholders comply with internal policies but going back to what we're doing with the website if you have the right tech in place you can often have systems that guide people to the right vendors and the right price lists and the right catalogs to make it easy for them because if it's easy for them to go in the catalog that you've negotiated with your preferred supplier then they're less likely to call their mate bob that works for a spare parts distributor and and request something out of policy yeah and i guess it comes down to a lot what i talk about on here as well with many guests it's about seeing people as people not as their jobs <laughs> And making sure that everybody is valued for what they bring to the organization and understanding the value that other teams bring. And that's one of the things that historically technology and procurement has been terrible at. For anyone that's been around this space, whether you're in procurement or whether you're in finance, especially if we're looking at something like a procure-to-pay system, the technology historically has not been user-friendly. So even though core users in procurement and in finance as an extension may know how to use it, the focus now is really on making that tech, you know, user experience and user interface is everything in technology, right? That's why Amazon and if you look at mobile phone apps, things like Tinder, for example, on the dating side has been so successful because it's so easy to use and the concept's so easy. Swipe right if you like someone. It's the same for procurement technology that the emphasis now, if it's something that's going to be used by the wider business, like you know a requisition to pay system, you've got to make that easy for the stakeholder to use. If someone's coming out of a factory with oil on his fingers and wants to go and order a spare part, or if someone in HR needs to, needs to order a new toner for the photocopier, make it easy for them. That's why ERP systems have been so bad at this, but also some of the more traditional legacy source-to-pay technology has been really clunky. And it's only now that user experience is coming to the forefront and some of the new wave of tech is the best of breed technology really focuses on that and has a mobile app first interface that is as easy as using something as Amazon or Google or, or Tinder to be able to do that from your phone or at least from a couple of clicks on the screen. And also to make sure that 
if suppliers are touching this technology in some cases, that it's easy to onboard them. There's one specific, I won't name who they are, but there's one of these suites that grew out of being an RFQ or e-auction platform that is still notoriously terrible for how long-winded it is to onboard suppliers. And you're losing the opportunity to so because some suppliers who have got more business and don't necessarily need you, they'll just say, no, I ain't using it. <laughs> Absolutely. We just walk with their feet and that's it. There's going to be something easier somewhere else. Absolutely. hundred percent. But I like, I, I, you know, I'm imagining all the headlines now, you know, make your procurement department like Tinder. No, don't please. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, it's the accessibility and just there are so many tools, like you say, James, that are out there that can be used to make people's work lives better and also to improve the bottom line. I mean, effectively, is what we're talking about as well, without going down the cost cutting route, but by going the value for money route, which I think is one that's often misunderstood. Yeah. Value for money does not mean cheapest. It means best value for money. It does. It's just unfortunate that the easiest way to save 10% in a crisis is just to cut marketing, training and, and, and travel budgets. But in the long term, it's the most commercially illiterate thing that you can do. Absolutely. I completely agree. We have actually run out of time, if you can believe it. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, because you host your own podcast, James, so maybe you just give a, like a little blurb about your podcast. That would be awesome. Thank you, Susan. So yeah, it's called the Procure Tech Podcast. And we say it's digital procurement unwrapped. So we really break down the language and make it simple to understand and feature a lot of new up and coming startups, industry thought leadership in that space around making procurement operations cheaper, smarter, better, faster. Cool. And any standout episode if somebody's like going, mm, I want to hear more about Ooh, this? Oh, there was a great one with an expert called Melissa Drew, who works for IBM, that was talking about uses of AI and procurement technology. That one was a really good one. Or to get a basic overview of source to pay, there was one that I did with a consultant from Canada called Joel that was all about some of the common mistakes when implementing a source to pay solution within your business. They're probably the ones for anyone that, that doesn't have a background background in this space that can get a good sort of overview. Brilliant. And then if anyone would like to connect with you further, James, what's the best way of doing that? To connect with me personally, the easiest way is just to reach out on LinkedIn. My last name is spelled M-E-A-D-S. Yeah, send me a connection request, drop me a quick note just to let you know where you found me. And if you're interested in procurement technology, just go to procurementsoftware.site if you're maybe a procurement or finance pro listening to this and want to have a bit of an overview of what's out there in the marketplace or, or a small to medium business owner oh in, well. indeed yeah i mean if you're doing yeah i mean if you're doing 10 million ish plus in revenue there will be technology out there that can help you absolutely <laughs> brilliant james thank you so much for your time and that was it was a different conversation to what i normally have but you know i could feel all my my accounting brain going into action as well <laughs> <laughs> and I, re I really enjoyed going down a couple of rabbit holes but not too many and yeah thank you very much thank you for having me been an absolute pleasure cheers Susan. okay cool bye 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 
Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from or questions for me, please drop a line to susan at beyond-thenumbers.com And finally, please consider leaving a review.